agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University, Michael Baranowski. Mike, welcome to the Midweek Show. Hey, it's good to be back, uh, Trey. I, I got to say that on the uh, on the original show, not the original show, but the weekend show that we just finished recording, I was feeling kind of kind of weird, a strange energy. I'm sort of tired and wired and just feeling just all kinds of like, I don't know, I could use some sort of mild self-medication or something like that. Are you but, saying that we need to inhale together on the show at the same time? Is that no, what I'm... Oh, man, I, I, I'm all out of edibles, so I'm in a rough spot, <laughs> man. So. I'm going to be honest. I can't, I can't even picture you taking an edible. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to be frank. Well, you know, I did the stranger, stranger things have happened. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that could, maybe that could be a supporter. You know, we're going to do these live shows, right? Our first one's going to be here on yeah. June 3rd. So maybe we could do a live show where, you know, <laughs> we start, uh, you know, I, I don't know, 30 ish, 30 to 45 I, minutes I in advance. I would have to get my uh, official Ohio medical marijuana uh, permit for my um, <laughs> sciatica or whatever. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, as long as that were OK. Yeah, that might be for an interesting uh, show for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Politics and weed. You know, I, I got to say, though, that before we get to the the listener questions that uh, that I know we're going to spend our time here on this. There was something that came up actually in the show we just recorded that listeners probably heard a few days ago now that I, I was hoping we could talk about. And you said you'd be up for it, but I noticed when we were talking about Tim Scott and his presidential campaign, you used the term to refer to the uh, Senator Scott as African American, and that's not just a Trey thing. I've noticed in the past that Ken uses that term too. And, and it's weird to me because for years for me now, the term that I automatically use is black, which I, I sort of think is just kind of the, if there's a, such a thing as a preferred or accepted sort of term. And I remember back, you know, in the nineties where African-American was sort of an agreed upon term, but, and I was just saying to you, it's weird. It, it maybe it feels to me, like how there was a time in the 60s and 70s, right, when when Negro was an accepted term mm -hmm. and now it kind of, you know, looked askance upon. And, and I don't know, I just it, I feel like if it if I noticed it and in some level, it almost kind of grated on me in a way. I know I'm to the right of a lot of our audience and at least some of our audience. And so I, I just wanted to ask you about that and, you know, to talk to you about how you decide on terms that you use for groups and things like that and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, for me personally, uh, you know, I have always tried to use the terms that groups use about themselves, right? Uh, and so I want to call people what people are calling themselves. And so uh, for me, and again, this is a microcosm. So maybe, and I, and, you know, as I think about it, it's been a number of years too, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, so and, and time moves on and you have to be careful about that. But yeah, for, for that, for talking about and, and people in terms of African-Americans, 
when I worked at Daytona State College in Central Florida, you know, a lot of people thought about Central Florida, you think Hispanics, but actually Central Florida is, is one of the largest home uh, of African-American or black people. Uh, and so at uh, DSC, I mean, one of our largest population groups was African-Americans. And so in uh, my honors classes with them, and we did race classes and things, and I actually worked with some other uh, professors who were teaching that, this is how those students wanted to be referred to. That's how they referred to themselves. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you were talking about Negro, it always brought me up. One of the things that one of our uh, religion professors would have him do is read things from like um, Martin Luther King Jr. And mm -hmm. I, I I'll never forget the first time we did that. And then suddenly, like a bunch of the white students were turning all these papers in with Negro. And I had their like right back. It's like, listen, guys, heads up. You can't. No, you don't get to talk about the Negro. <laughs> that's not yeah, how this works. Yeah. Uh, but because they had read that, they're like, well, that's just, this is what I'm going to, I guess I can call them that this now. Uh, so for me, I have always attempted to use the names that people have asked me to use, whatever that kind of category is, but especially in this case. So, you know, if listeners, uh, you know, since that you, you were talking about it, it almost kind of degraded on you, but, you know, if, if listeners, if you're like, listen, I, you, know, I, you know, I am African American, I'm black, and I prefer these kinds of terminologies. I want to refer to people the way that they're comfortable being referred to. And so that's why I've always been careful to do that. Another one, I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember this uh, exchange between Ken and myself, um, but I had a change. I don't use the term uh, 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 slave. I use the term uh, enslaved person now. Uh, mm, and, right. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I think those are moments of kind of recognition to say, yeah, the language that we use matters. And I think we should always be open to thinking about, you know, what, how am I describing people? And am I, am, am I describing them the way that they identify? Yeah. And, and that can be, that can be tricky because it changes, it can change slowly over time. And so it's always difficult to know when there's a tipping point there. And like you said, is is I think, especially when you come of age politically in a certain era, you just get used to certain terms or things. Like I remember so many of us called, uh, would still even to this day occasionally call Ukraine, the, the Ukraine. That's oh sort my of a goodness, so many times. <laughs> there you go. So, so anyway, I thought it was worth pointing out because it's just an interesting uh, little thing that uh, seemed like good bonus show kind of material. But uh, I just wanted to, to bring it up and kind of hear what you had to say about it. So how did you decide, how did you end up using the term black in that sense then, Mike? You know, I, I think probably as someone who's given that I'm left of center and I think I'm exposed to a lot more left of center media from and you know the left is a much more diverse ideological group i mean in, in terms of in terms of ethnicity and and, and race and that sort of thing and, and so i think i probably have just would be more likely than someone on the right to see the term black used to see that switch earlier than someone maybe who's a little bit more from the right and doesn't have that much exposure so that that that's kind of what i what i would expect is is the case for me well, you know, since we're taking on listener questions, I'll say again, uh, you know, Discord, I, if anybody, uh, again, we don't know what anybody's ethnicity is, obviously, uh, but I, I would be curious, regardless of the ethnicity, the language that people use on that front. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would be very fascinated and it would be helpful. <laughs> so we also uh, write this debate about about Hispanic or Latinx or all that. And it seems like this this was a case where 
some people maybe, uh, particularly on the left, were maybe up ahead of what a lot of folks actually who consider themselves part of that community wanted to be called. So you yeah. don't get to call people what you want, even if you think it's for their own good in some weird way, right? I mean, it's a community gets to decide, I think, in the end, how it is referred to within, I think, obviously within, you know, within reason sort of thing, you know, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, I just thought words can be uh, interesting things anyway. Well, you have to, because I mean, again, we're both scholars on that front and naming yeah. things matters, right? And being careful about the recognition that the thing, what we call things has implications for it. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite papers that I ever wrote, I co-authored it uh, uh, with uh, Dr. Daniel Doty that got turned down like a thousand times for reasons that I, they're beyond me. So it's my, it's my favorite never published piece <laughs> uh, was called the nomenclature of war, where we were really trying to explore those kinds of questions, but in terms of conflict, uh, you know, the, the importance of the naming of conflicts and, and why do conflicts get named the way they do and why do they evolve over time, which they do. Um, and it's even, you know, that's a conflict, which is an impersonal thing in some ways. Uh, but, you know, in this case, you know, we're talking about actual uh, directly people naming, which is even more so. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, anybody's curious, you're more than welcome. Uh, we can send it out as a supporter thing. You can you can read my unpublished work. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, but anyway. Anyway, so what we were going to be doing, uh, Michael was just kind of like right there, is we're going to be taking on questions from listeners. And now we're doing this sober, just to be clear. Uh, you know, Mike did not actually have an edible in advance. Um, <laughs> as far as uh, I'm, I'm, I'm saying nothing. Listen, <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to have a good time. We'll just say this. You know, as listeners know, right, I've done this show, uh, I'm doing really well right now when it comes to my uh, my body, but I am not going to say that there weren't shows where I had not taken a significant amount of painkiller. Now, again, prescribed and by my doctor, I want to be clear about that, but that does not mitigate all of the the effects that it you know, just because your doctor prescribes it doesn't mean suddenly you're like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't feel differently now. So I can't say that I've ever never done a show under the influence. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> but um, but yeah, anyway, so we're going to take on listener questions. And, and you know, we, had, I th we always get really good questions. I've really yeah. enjoyed Discord on that front. And this question that we had up front, it really made me think for a while because I had kind of an initial response and I thought about it more and I thought about it again. And then I had another response. I don't know. But the question at hand is this, uh, uh, Mike, we're going to start with this. Do states have the right to secede from the union? Yeah, and obviously, I think there's both a contemporaneous aspect to that question, but you can't ignore the history of that question either, because, of course, we have the Civil War, right? You know, uh, uh, we have, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, who right after being elected to the presidency in November 1860s, uh, has seven southern states secede from the Union. Uh, and in March 1861, after he's inaugurated the 16th president of the United States, four more follow. And, you, and, and so we have a period where we talk about that, obviously, in really pragmatic ways. And, and so I was thinking through that and, and, and thinking through the implications of that in the contemporary period. So 
I mean, I think in one way, the Civil War maybe answers that question sort of, uh, but maybe not satisfactorily. Uh, what do you think about that? I was just going to start there. Yeah, well, you know, as I said, this came out of a, a discussion I, I had with, with one of our one of our listeners and regular Discord folks about uh, Florida and some things that Florida could or couldn't do. And I half jokingly said, well, it'd be a different story if Florida seceded. You know, it would be like the 11th largest economy in the world or something like that. And <laughs> right. I mean, it got me to thinking. And so I guess like you, I had an initial thought and then I thought about it some more. And so if you'll indulge me, uh, Trey, for a second, I, I want to start with 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 a quote. If that's okay, please. So, all right. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, Trey, I know you, you know where that comes from. Oh, yeah. I, I read that every year, uh, twice a year in my uh, American government classes. Yeah. Declaration of Independence. And I, I think that's that's an incredibly important principle. And it, it it goes directly to that question, because you're right, obviously, that as a matter of law, the Civil War did settle that. And not only that, but in fact, the Supreme Court, 1868, Texas versus White said, no, there is no right to unilaterally secede. Um, but as a matter of political theory, as a matter of founding principles on which this country was based, on which dem democratic government itself is based, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it sure does seem like there should be some sort of mechanism, at least, for leaving a union that you believe has become destructive of your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And yet we're saying, nope, nope, you're in it. You're in it for life. Too bad if you don't like it, suck it up. And boy, that just, that started to grate on me a little bit, I got to say. Well, I mean, you know, if you'll, if you'll incline me with another quote, uh, uh, this do. is actually Abraham Lincoln. Prior to all of that in 1848, he says, quote, he's talking about the Declaration of Independence, quote, any people anywhere being inclined and having the power have the right to rise up and shake off the existing government and form a new one that suits them better, end quote. Uh, and I, the reason I was, as I was thinking about it and rethinking about it uh, in terms of Lincoln, I think Lincoln is really emblematic of our kind of dual desires to, on the one hand, you know, idolize the Declaration of Independence, but on the other hand, to be really uncomfortable with the meaning of the Declaration of Independence, right? Yeah. And, and and I'll do what I do for for students. You know, when you, when you talk about this in terms of the class, it's easy. Because we're used to hearing. I, I, at least I hope most of our listeners are used to hearing those words. 
it can kind of be, it almost kind of washes over you. Uh, yeah. So I never know if you've done this exercise before. And there's a number of different institutions that actually tweet out the Declaration of Independence yearly. Did you know about that? Yeah, I think I've heard something about that. Right. Uh-huh. I've never seen it, but I, yeah. Now, I mean, again, you might say that's not a particularly interesting study, Trey. Why are you talking about that? Well, what's interesting is, and I have captured some of this, have you ever looked at people's responses to it? <laughs> yeah. I bet people get angry and, and who gets angry really depends on who like, so, you know, Trump is the, usually it's in terms of either who's the president. So when Obama was in office, uh, liberals got very upset with it online. And when Trump was in office, Republicans got really upset with it because they're getting the declaration kind of out of context. And so they're not hearing it the way they're used to. And so they're seeing this coming from a think tank and going, how dare you talk about, you know, uprising with weapons against my president. Yeah. And, and I think that helps kind of put in why this is a difficult, uh, uh, a difficult question. Now, so for me, I, I, you know, my initial response, Mike, was to say, you know, well, heck, I, I named my middle son after John Locke. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, 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 th- I, I think as a matter of fact, we have to have that right. You know, that you can't be permanently bound uh, to an institution. Now, that leads to uncomfortable and complicated questions about, well, you know, when is it okay to then point the guns? Because that's what you're talking about. You know, when, when is it okay to point the guns and say, you know, here's what, you know, you can't do this to me or leave me alone. Uh, and and I think that's the problem, hard. right? Because if there is no legal mechanism to leave, then what are you left with? Exactly. I mean, I could envision a scenario in which, say, you said uh, a constitution, uh, you know, a a new article in the constitution saying that any state upon the approval of two thirds of voters and the unanimous approval of majorities in every other state shall be allowed to leave this union. Yeah, I know. But we have anything like that seems to me. I mean, I don't know about the numbers, but I would argue that probably you'd need a large, a significant supermajority within the states. And I would argue for unanimous consent of the other states to break up that union. But at least it would be something. And then people could direct their energies into saying, just like they do with national popular vote or other constitutional amendments into some sort of legal mechanism, if you feel that strongly. But right now, if you feel that the lack of a mechanism is unjust, you don't really have any legal recourse. I guess you could argue for a secession constitutional amendment and then, but that seems rather abstract. I mean, you know, yeah, I don't know. So I, yeah. Well, I, I think that's the fundamental issue is, is that, and, and you, and you, and you were touching it kind of perfectly there, right? If the system itself is such that I think it's so broken that I want to be exited from it, right? You either have to have a have to have some kind of lowish bar to be able to exit, <laughs> but that that feels counterintuitive. But you know, I mean, no, I, I, I know think what you're saying because well, how would the broken system let us get out of the broken system? Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, who, who, what's going to be likely to do that. But, it, you know, this is this is the thing. I'll be honest. And this hits at the thing that I think is kind of the heart of the normative question of the state, which is to say, well, and I'm willing to say that states can have the, the ability to constrain us. But and this is the you know, here's where the big ugly butt comes in, as, they, as everybody as the kids all say. But 
but at the same time, there there has to be a, a point in a way, morally speaking, where I can exit from that. Because if I if, if there is absolutely no exit mechanism, then I have no real underlying fundamental right. Because an exit mechanism is kind of at the basis of your fundamental rights. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think you and I would probably disagree a little bit here as to the level of that. And like I would, for instance, say that maybe let's say I've decided I want to secede from the, the state of Ohio or the United States. As an individual, I do not have that right to do that. And so but that at is at some point, though, enough people would have to be yes, able to have that right, though. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, and I would argue that that would have to be that that I think that should not be just a bare majority. But it is a it is a crucial, large enough issue that just like with amending the Constitution, uh, dissolving any part of the union should require a supermajority of, of the people who want to leave and unanimous consent of majorities of the people who would be affected by that. So, you know, a, a related question to that then for me has often become, why do you think that we're so and when I say we, why do you think that states historically have been so scared of even entertaining the possibility for legal exit as opposed to it always having to be forced exits. I mean, even you, democracies, you mean, I mean, they, they, yeah. there, there are, there, they, I, I, I was looking at this, you know, I do some comparative work. There are no democratic institution. There are no democratic states. And by this, I'm, I'm even going outside. I don't mean states in the United States, but I mean, there are yeah, no yeah. democratic countries. Uh, that have legalized exit options. But of course, you know, at the United Nation level, we have this idea that suggests that people have a right to self-governance, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but none of the countries who agree to that principle have legal mechanisms to make that possibility. We're, we're scared about that. But, but, but I wonder oftentimes why. I mean, it seems apparent, you know, we, we see, like, take, think about, you know, we want to date ourselves for a minute. Uh, uh, we were talking about, you know, I remember uh, the Berlin Wall, right? I mean, one of the arguments against totalitarian states uh, uh, like the Soviet Union was, well, look at all of the people who are desperately attempting to exit. You know, if you have a, a democratic state that's functioning properly, wouldn't you want to like brow proudly have the exit option to say, look, here's this exit option. Maybe it's, you know, we, we, we yeah. have to figure out where it is. And people don't use it because right. why would you? You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I think you're right. There is that there is this assumption, there's this right to self-governance, but at, at, in a sense, it ends at the national level, right? Because you can you can break away and do your own thing from the international community. But uh, we recognize sort of we, we recognize countries as this sort of these these sovereign units and you can't break away within because that's rebellion and that's not OK unless you win, in which case then over time it can be OK. Yeah. And, and your and your point about that national identity, I mean, of course, that is something that has been flexible throughout history. Right. One era yeah. is national identity, you know, is another's not. <laughs> um I mean, again, I'm not suggesting I don't want any states to be seceding from the American Union. Uh, but again, thinking through that national identity, think how different uh, a member of, say, Texas or Florida, you know, given your conversation on Discord is today from some other portions of the United States comparatively historically. Yeah, there's differences. 
I, and again, I think that's a positive thing. But, but you know, the, again, that idea of what is it that, that binds us together as a nation is a fluid concept. And uh, we, I mean, we could spend a whole, we could, yeah, we could spend and, a whole you know, time you, talking just about that. And we can take a look at some examples where there's maybe less culturally binding groups and there's been more of a, a push for that. Like, for instance, the UK and the EU or just to the north of us, uh, Quebec and, and, and Canada. Right. And there are some there are some clear differences, I think, in, in the Quebec case and in, in culture or language, certainly. And in the you know EU UK case, obviously geographic. Right. There's the channel that separates them and continental Europe is different. And so you maybe see more. More of a, a push to try to find some way uh, of doing that. Now, uh, UK succeeded because the EU allowed for that. Whereas in the Canada situation, it's it's a little more a little more challenging than that. Certainly. So one last thing I had thought about on this front, uh, Mike, was you know, in I wonder if part of it is in the narrative of, and I mean liberalism broadly, right? I think in liberalism broadly, there was this kind of idea that national identities would break down over time and therefore we would continue to kind of combine together and combine together so i mean take a look at this in kind of science fiction ways right you know in star trek what what eventually ultimately happens is, is we recognize we're all just human beings and so there's a singular earth um but that cuts against, of course, the idea that anybody might want to. And again, by anybody, I'm not trying to make that individualistic argument at this juncture, just saying that there might not be groups of people who say, but I'm unique and different enough that we want to be our own different thing. There doesn't always I mean, despite the fact that's where liberalism, again, writ large starts from, it doesn't always feel like in, the, in our modern conception of it, we've left space for it. No, I, I agree. I feel like one of the great failings of liberalism and sort of whole technocratic rationality movement that's gone along with it is this over-reliance in, in the assumption that is oftentimes wrong, that we are all in the end pretty much the same and believe in the same things and want the same things. And on some level, that's true. You know, just a couple of days ago, I was interviewing someone. Uh, this, this should come up, uh, I don't know, next week or so on the show or in a couple of weeks, whatever, um, about China. And he's a, a China expert. And he's saying, you know, I spent time in China. I learned the language. I, I did some backpacking, you know, years. And it's they're just different. A lot of Chinese people and their views in that. So this idea that, well, we can all be together under one form of government and it's going to be liberal democracy and happy, happy, joy, joy, uh, maybe not so much. You, know, you mentioned Star Trek and you were talking about, you know, that that sort of Star Trek, right, utopian vision of, of, of the Federation of Planets and all that. When you said that, the first thing I thought about was the dystopian side of that coin of the Borg. And I yeah. think a lot of people see see it much more in a Borg. We're all going to be part of the collective as opposed to, oh, we're part of this wonderful United Federation. And that's kind of a tension in the show. Uh, at least maybe I read it into the show. But I think it's also a, a tension in our larger society. Oh, I think you're right about the show and in larger society. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you continue to watch Star Trek, but that's been part of the uh, yep. the, the critique in the most um, – modern versions of it that just come out in like the show Picard for Star Trek Picard, for example. Just, just, just finished watching that. And I was, I was careful. I, when I was, when I was talking not to specifically reference any spoilers or anything like that. <laughs> That's a true uh, point. That's a true I, point. I will say, 
I will say seasons one and two of Picard, disappointing. Season three, when the old gang gets back together, very much not disappointing. But anyway, that's just my little editorializing there. So a recommendation <laughs> throw in there as well. You can start with season three, especially if you're if you're familiar with the next generation and that timeline, you'd be good to go. I'm going to say one in three, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I watched most of one, two. It could, yeah, anyway. No, well, you know, you start doing all the time travel stuff and I, I lose interest. Yeah, but yeah. anyway. Well, that does it for the preview for this week's midweek show. So if you're not already a supporter, what that means is, is if you want to listen to the rest of this show, what you need to do is consider becoming one. Without our supporters, that's what makes the podcast happen. And you get all kinds of cool benefits, including getting to finish this midweek show. So you want to become a, a, a member of the midweek show, listen to the rest of the things with myself. I would love for that to happen. We just need you to become a supporter. So how do you become a supporter? Take a look at the show notes down at the bottom of your podcast app, or you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also get us on Venmo where we're at politics guys. You can also support the sh th show through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes as well. But again, don't forget, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support or patreon.com slash politics guys. If you need to get the midweek uh, mid show, but you are not financially in a position to do that, don't forget, you can reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com and he can get you set up. If you've got some kind of question, you can always reach out to us at mail at politicsguys.com. Again, you can find all of our contact, including on Facebook and Twitter, in the show notes. But again, to listen to the rest of the show, because it's worth the end of the preview, you're going to need to head to uh, patreon.com slash politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode this weekend.